Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the CEO and Chief Strategist of QI Research. Danielle, welcome to the show. It's great to be here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. I'm so excited because you are the most unique economist out there because you've worked for the Fed and then you've set up your own unique firm. So you have a, a perspective that nobody else has. It's been 36 years since the stock market crash. It's the 19th of October. Do you remember the crash of 1987? Uh, Actually, I do. Uh, I was in high school at the time, but I was already kind of aware. My father taught economics and finance, so I kind of grew up around very dusty Wall Street journals everywhere. Um, So I was was certainly aware of it at at the time. And probably what was unique from the perspective of my last year in, in in, in, in my primary education was that it came and came and went so quickly. And later on in life, I learned I learned why thanks to Alan Greenspan, but uh, as, as well as uh, Cassidy, who was running the New York Fed at the time. But it came and went so quickly. It was just a flash in the pan. Right. Absolutely. And many people at the moment are worried about a crash, especially this time of the year. The market's wobbling a bit. Some people think it's a dip to buy. What's your take on it? So, you know, I'm, I've always been somebody who's, I'm, I'm Italian, so I, I always look to symbolism, if you will. Um, and when you see that there's been an exchange-traded fund established for two times Tesla or two times short Tesla, two times NVIDIA or two times short NVIDIA today, mm. uh, you say to yourself, these are signs of the time because it's, it's an exchange-traded fund, right? And yet it's based on a single stock, a single stock that, uh, two single stocks that have been the target of speculators uh, on both sides. But but again, we feel like we're extremely long in the tooth here in terms of the forms that speculation has taken on, whether it was SPACs or NFTs of, of Snoop Dogg's Mars, uh, you know, the layout for his home on Mars and somebody paying millions for that, um, or the implosion purely, um, clearly of the, of the venture capital bubble and throwing good money at bad companies just because the money was there. And and now you have uh, investors who are keen to make their fortune on, on one stock or the other. So excessive speculation is what you're worried about. Is that, is that what you're saying? It, it's yes, absolutely what I'm worried about. And the fact that it doesn't matter what economic indicator or what financial market indicator you put up against, say the 10 year treasury yield or the S&P 500. The alligator jaw syndrome is is exhausting. And when I say alligator jaw, I, I just mean to say that historically speaking, relationships across the board have fallen apart. So things that have t- historically moved together no longer move together. That's how far off valuations are in stocks, and that's how low valuations are in, in bonds such that historical relationships have crumbled. Tim, you're seeing something akin to that in terms of value, which seems to be coming back um, as we speak, as we see gold bubbling up. Um, what, what's your take on it? I mean, I suppose our portfolios are concentrated for reasons that will be apparent to anyone that's been a long-term listener for a while in real assets, commodities, precious metals, and they've had a fairly torrid time of things, but it, it really feels like they're on the cusp of a, of a huge, huge move up. Um I'm not convinced that value stocks are necessarily going to be immune to a broader trend. And it, the, the best comparison I can think of in terms of gut feel for what we're living through now is basically February, March 2000, when the, the first dot-com boom was long in the tooth and there was a slight sense of unreality to things. And then NASDAQ finally just capitulated and, and went woof and, and basically sort of shat the bed. That's what it feels like to me. You know, it, it's interesting you bring that up because... It feels like that to me. I was on Wall Street at the time, but it equally feels like 2007 on the credit side because there's so much more leverage uh, in the in corporate America. Heck, in commercial real estate worldwide, in corporations worldwide. So it, and if, if if that's the case, then the the, the surge 
up in 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 yields in interest rates over the last eighteen months has has to be just catastrophic for the more highly levered companies out there. Oh, well, what we're seeing right now in bankruptcies, in distress, in the inability of companies to refinance, uh, is quite extraordinary. Uh, looking back over thirty six years, when quote unquote walls of maturity never really mattered. Uh, because any and all companies could come to market preemptively 12 to 18 months prior to maturity and go ahead and, and, and refinance and not have to worry about it. This is going to be the first wall of maturity that, that companies walk up to and, and, and crash into. So if Jerome Powell called you up and said, Danielle, what should I do? What would you well, say? Well, he to may him? be doing that right now <laughs> as we speak. Paul. Yeah. Oh, he's getting on stage in New York at the Economics Club of New York. I can assure you. But he could call. You, he might call you before. He, yeah. Well, that's true. He might call me as he's getting mic'd up and say, "Danielle, what do I do?" Exactly. Um, I actually don't disagree with the current game plan. And the current game plan is to talk up rates, being higher for longer, but not talk up rates too terribly much. And that is to say, you leave the possibility out there. There might be room for one more rate hike. Maybe, maybe, wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, what people don't have a good appreciation for right now is the level of rates is completely irrelevant if he manages to keep them where they are. And then the, the distance between what we were just talking about, the distance between where companies originally took debt on and where they would have to refinance to, it may as well be as wide as the Mojave Desert. So as long as he maintains higher for longer, your illiquidity situation is going to be untenable. On top of that, he has said that he plans to continue rolling off the, the Fed's balance sheet, even if there are Fed rate cuts in 2024. So that's extremely meaningful when you think about the effect of liquidity depletion from the system and the effect that that has had on, on the ability to access the capital markets. So even if you start to lower interest rates, again, the level's irrelevant. If he goes from, call it 5% to 4%, the bridge between a company that was financing in a zero interest rate environment and 4%, it, it may as well be 30%. You mm. still can't bridge the gap and stay solvent. The good news is, though, that Janet Yellen said that the U.S. can afford another war, so this at least is that. Yes, well, we don't really have to talk about Mrs. Magoo in the Treasury Department. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, yes, no, we, we do not. <laughs> so do you, think, do you think there'll be a recession next year? You know, it's interesting you ask. Um, at QI Research, every week we track... Um, the number of states, including Washington, D.C., so your number there is 51, and we track the number of states where there are uh, rising numbers of individuals uh, collecting unemployment benefits. And in September of 2022, that number was a great big round zero. And given the fact that we had a holiday here in the United States, it looks like we're down, uh, in, in, the, in the most recent week, it looks like we're down to one state out of 51 that does not have rising numbers of continuing jobless claimants. Uh, bankruptcies are, of course, uh, among companies with $50 million in liabilities or more. Bankruptcies are running at the fastest pace since 2010. Uh, bankruptcies tend to follow with a 60, 90-day lag. There's severance payments made to redundant uh, employees. So, um, and, and the U.S. government has just pulled the plug on an enormous fiscal stimulus program that was handing, oh, I don't know, in, in July it handed $30 billion in cash to higher income Americans. So the, 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 the plug was pulled on that after July. And, um, and so that lines up perfectly with LVMH stock, which also peaked in July. So there's a massive confluence of events. Uh, somebody asked me a few days ago, California, fifth largest economy on the planet, uh, they were supposed to pay their federal income taxes on Monday, October the 16th. Uh, they had been delayed, much delayed. This is 15% of U.S. GDP. They had been delayed uh, from, from April until October. And for no reason at all, the U.S. Treasury came out and said, we're going to delay those payments for another 
30 days to November the 16th. That's how tenuous the situation is right now with the U.S. economy and how very paranoid the administration in Washington is about the, the this house of cards kind of coming in on itself. If you were a bond issuer and you did that, someone would suggest you were in default or, or, or on the cusp of default. Uh, if you're talking about the U.S. risk-free rate, it, um, I mean, I, I won't use the word luckily because that's that's not nice, but uh, the, the rest of the world's in much worse shape. So the, the presumption that the risk-free rate is not going to remain risk-free assumes that a meteor is going to fall out of the sky or Jesus Christ himself is going to walk the ground again. Do you not get the sense, I'm, I'm obviously making a leading statement, but you don't get the sense that we're living through a sort of end of cycle, end of super cycle uh, phase now. So the, what, what, what I find intriguing about those people opining about rates and, and U.S. yields is they say, well, there's the recession, then yields will come back down again. But they're assuming a kind of reversion to the mean that would, would hold under normal circumstances. But we're clearly not in normal circumstances anymore. We, we left, you know, in, what's the phrase? We're not in whichever camp, whichever state it is in Kansas. the Wizard of Oz. We're, yeah. we're not well, in Kansas we're anymore. Of- we left Kansas a long time ago. We, you know, we did leave, leave Kansas a long time ago. We left Kansas... Um, depending on who you speak to with when Ronald Reagan came to office, or um, of course the most egregious was when Donald Trump came to office, nobody spent that much money. Uh, so I, I dare say that the, um, that, that this narrative of doom and gloom is exactly what I just described it as, which is a narrative. And uh, the people espousing the narrative, no doubt have a ton of money to make in that they're positioned to take advantage of rising rates based on the notion that debt and deficits all of a sudden matter. Uh, What they won't tell you is that the United States House of Representatives still has no Speaker of the House and that the only thing that matters when it comes to fiscal uh, profligacy is what occurs on the margins. And right now it looks like marginal borrowing at the earliest could rise uh, in March of 2025. So, um, no, it's, uh, there are a lot of people positioned for this trade. And that is why I would play devil's advocate all day long and push back against the effect of what is shaping up to be a longer and deeper and more prolonged and, and larger credit event than what the great financial crisis was, uh, a deeper and longer recession than what the great recession was that we all recall back from 2007, 2009, precisely because Jay Powell appears to be a man on a mission to destroy what we call the Fed put and, and once and for all take speculators down. And in order to do that, you have to stay higher for longer and weed out from the non-banking system, which is, of course, $240 trillion worldwide, larger than the conventional banking system, $180 trillion. You have to weave out all of the people who've made gobs of money over generations, taking advantage of the fact that the Fed always pivots. And yet here we are, and Jay Powell's not pivoting. What should the market be most concerned about? Or what do you think the market is most concerned about in terms of non-farm payrolls or inflation? What should they be looking at? Non-farms recently was very strong. Inflation seems to be coming down, um, but could easily go back up again. We've, We've seen oil spike. Um, which obviously affects everybody. How, what what do you think we should be looking at? Well, I, I think people should be much more focused on non-farm payrolls. Um, there is a there is a measure of inflation called trueflation, TRU. Um, the correlation with headline CPI is only ninety seven percent, and uh, it's at two point two five percent. So those who are still focused on inflation. Um, They've clearly been on, on a very prolonged vacation, uh, but people are indeed focused on non-farm payrolls, and um, the the manipulation of the data has has come to such an extreme that you know somebody back in the USSR would be blushing right now, or somebody <laughs> at the People's Bank of China would be blushing right now. That is some um, comment. Amazing, yeah. Um, so you have been vocal about race peaking or having peaked. When did you first get that view? Um, because it's not been um, it's not been a a common view. Most people have been expecting rates to go higher. 
Well, I, I got the view because I follow the economy at an extremely close level. And when you see something as, as seemingly benign as let's do a Google search on can't pay credit card, four words, can't pay credit card, and you see that it's at 100%. Uh, as opposed to the 75% during the great financial crisis, you say to yourself, well, it would appear that U.S. households, which are responsible for 70% of U.S. GDP, it would appear that U.S. households, given the 100% reading, are fairly stressed um, and that this is going to manifest in lower consumption, which, of course, only the three biggest banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Citigroup, and Bank of America, finally acquiesced on. Um, the consumer no longer being strong. Citigroup said that September credit card spending had fallen by 11%. That I consider that to be a tangible number. Um, don't rely on our statisticians to get that right. It'll be revised away uh, in, in future retail sales reports. But I'm on the ground. And, and Jay Powell himself just said that he's proceeding carefully given the risks in the environment. He's, he's not blind. He's not an economist, thank God. And, um, and and he sees the data for what it for the for what the data is. So next year we've got an election year. How <laughs> some there's this view that the economy may be being pulled back, held back, just so rates can go down, and then everything starts to turn up just at the time when politically it is expedient. How, how, how they're supposed to be independent? How independent do you think they really are at the Fed? <laughs> Um, well, I think that most people at the Fed are not independent. Um, we've just pretty much confirmed at the Senate two socialists, the board, but I think that Jay Powell with his net worth of only a hundred million might not need the government pension and that he, uh, has every latitude in the world to remain independent until presumably special operations take him out. So he will, uh, he has. There's a very big risk that Jay Powell's made. I, I'm speaking tongue in cheek, but only sort of, uh, because there's a very high probability that he becomes the fall guy in an election year with a rising unemployment rate, with a completely dysfunctional Congress that won't. I mean, the American consumer is going to be screaming for fiscal relief in 2024, and of course, without without an election and given the dysfunctionality of the, of the house of representatives run by the, the GOP, there'll, there'll be no stimulus forthcoming. And so that will, that will make the, the coming, the upcoming election year, a, a very social, uh, a very volatile time, um, for our society because the, 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 because things will get to be so bad for your average working man and woman on the street who will not be getting any relief from the government. I was listening to um, a podcast a little while earlier with Aegon von Greitz, um and Ronnie Sturfley of Incrementum and Grant Williams, who I, I suspect you know some or probably all of those people. And one of the things that came out was, I think, a question from Grant, are there such things as safe havens anymore? Are, are there any safe havens in this world? Well, I think for the moment that, bizarrely enough, Given where inflation is, I think that cash is not a bad place to be, very short-term treasuries. And I think that gold is kind of a no-brainer here. I Platinum, uh, I, I, would, I, I would be very specific in saying precious metals. Mm. Uh, last check, China simply does not have the wherewithal, and India is not quite there. So your industrial complex, obviously, you've seen the, the stress in copper, iron ore, et cetera. So in that India is not there and in that China ain't going to be there for a long time or if ever. And it, it appears that they're on the decline with their, the, their economy relative to that of the world economy shrinking for the last few years. There was just talk, what, two years ago that China was going to be the largest economy in the world. And there's crickets on that front now, of course. Mm. Um, but... Uh, but I would definitely say that, that precious metals, in times of financial distress, even when you have goods, the goods consumer price index in the United States at 0.1% year over year veering into deflation, I would say that people need to read their history books 
and understand that even in deflationary moments, if there is a financial crisis, that your precious metals have still proven to be extremely safe havens. Do you think the 1970s is an appropriate comparative period for what we're living through now? Oh, God, no. That was a... No, 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 no. That was that, that was a, a, a persistent supply, cho- supply shock. But in t- oh, well, I'm thinking more in terms of things like culturally, geopolitically, ah, uh, social oh, distress, uh, high inflation, uh, energy shocks, uh, war in the Middle East. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, it, it feels more like, I wasn't alive then, but from what I've heard, it feels more like 1968, 1969. Yeah, that's why it's Vietnam era um, stuff, isn't it? Well, there's tremendous division. And if there's a, the largest generation of Americans, they don't want to go to work. They don't want to pay their bills. Um, they don't want anything. They just they just want to stick it to the boomer. And, um, and then people of the Gen X and the boomer generations don't really know where to file that. They don't understand where to put 82 million Americans who don't want to work. Now, I'm completely oversimplifying. In fact, I, I have employees who are millennials who worked very, very hard, but there is a very large voting block in the country who feels that they're entitled. And when it comes to the discussion about, are we going to have higher inflation structurally? Are we going to have higher interest rates structurally? If in November of 2024, there is a blue wave in the United States uh, triggered by millennials voting together to make sure that they never have to pay for anything, then the universal basic income, full-on socialism, modern monetary theory, whatever you want to call it that was test-driven, with the passage of the CARES Act in March of 2020 that ignited inflation that pressed into the double-digit range, we will get that in the United States. And so the possibility is very much out there that, that things could get so bad in the next year that the inflation completely flips the narrative back to helicopter money and giving money directly to U.S. households and sending inflation from where it is today, 2.25%, according to Truflation, back up to double digits. So would you say the dollar's set on a path to to fall from here? Relative to what? Well, um, if if there's a blue wave, you would think that, um, that of course, if you had Weimar Republic type of inflation. But yeah. I mean... A, a, but again, you're, you're, this, but you're talking about, I mean, I think you have to be very careful on how you contextualize this. You're talking about the spring of 2025 here. So there's a wee bit of time in between here and then. And in the meantime, there's no stimulus coming. Yes, but the market's forward looking, isn't it? So what, what I'm thinking uh, is the... I've only been around the markets for 25 years, sweetheart. They're not that forward looking. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, perhaps not that far, but maybe six to eight months. But... Um, what I'm thinking is that uh, which country is getting it right? And if you were going to move out of the dollar, obviously the question of gold's come up and precious metals, which are bubbling up quite nicely, and gold could really go on a tear, if, if, and that's soon. So somebody is seeing something early. Um, but what what about other countries, and what about Bitcoin? I remember last time we talked about this, and you said you weren't particularly a fan of it. Has Has that view changed? Uh, no, um, but I'm no longer in the minority, so that's something, right? And it's very much more difficult to find platforms to play in that arena. Um, I, I think we have to be careful about comparing the dollar right now because had you asked me this question a year ago, I would say, well, the U.S. manufacturing sector is um, finally, uh, excuse me, the automobile sector is finally healing completely and semiconductors have been replenished such that um, countries like Mexico will have uh, will see their 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 currencies come roaring back because they'll be they'll be benefiting from the recovery in the US automobile sector mm. that's indeed what we've seen of course anything south of the border of the United States now they're looking to either hold interest rates steady or lower them Obviously, Christine Lagarde's about to have her hiney handed to her, um, so I wouldn't look there. And um, and China's struggling mightily 
with its own currency and Japan is a train wreck. So um, I, I revert back to, unfortunately, what my old boss, well, I shouldn't call him old, he's aging very nicely, Richard Fisher used to say uh, about the United States being the most attractive horse in the glue factory. It's interesting you mentioned um, China and China and Japan. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you find it remotely ironic that Japan has at least finally now got inflation after 30-odd years of wrestling with outright deflation? And just as that's happening, China seems to be tipping over and having its own sort of property market meltdown, which makes it look acutely similar to Japan circa 1989. No, there are definite similarities there, especially when you weave in the fact that China is now exporting deflation. Um, and, and that is, of course, another corollary to Japan back in the day. Uh, no, there, there's a certain irony uh, about it. Uh, I, I doubt that, that, that Japanese retirees would really want to chuckle about the discussion we're having. Um, but they are, they are, if nothing else, stoic. I mean, this is the, the reason why I think Japan is such a fascinating test case. The, 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 the quote I remember from 20-odd years ago was a fund manager that said, Japan was a dress rehearsal. The rest of the world will be the main event. But the difference being that Japanese can really, can really basically put up with pretty much anything. I mean, like literally like atomic bombs being dropped on them. Whereas you get the sense that degree of economic stoicism simply would not exist in the West. Well, no, we just had our auto workers ask for a 32-hour work week, which would make a French person blush. So, um, <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think the West would lay down for that at all. I mean, it's, it's clearly the latent inflation. And I should be very clear about not being too cheeky. It, inflation is running at two, two and a quarter percent. If you look at Trueflation's cumulative inflation since January of 2020, that's 23.9%. So households are still living with higher prices than they were prior to the pandemic. So they really could care less about some economic construct that suggests prices are rising less quickly than they used to if they're still having to spend more of their budget than they were prior to the pandemic and wage inflation is coming down. So, um, no, there's not going to be any stoicism in the United States, which is what I'm referring to going into a, a, an election year where, where your Congress and your White House are at a loggerhead and not able to pass any fresh stimulus, which is really going to anger the U.S. population or a lot of people in it. I appreciate we don't even necessarily know the candidates yet, but what, what, what's your assessment at the moment of, of how things might play out next year? Well, it's, been, it's been interesting to see uh, kind of one of Donald Trump's main proponents in the House of Representatives uh, fail at being able to coalesce uh, a majority. So I think that that's something that, that a lot of politicos are sitting back and looking at curiously. Uh, you know, there's obviously the Gavin Newsom um, uh, possibility. He's extremely articulate. I think the only person who could probably uh, debate the, the governor of California, um, the, the great, great, great state of the, of, of, of the Middle Kingdom. Uh, I think that there's only one person who could... Uh, who could debate him? That would be Nikki Haley. She's shown that on the stage. The question is, where do the billionaires put their money? Behind whom? They've already stated it's not going to be Donald Trump. And so it really will matter about what the Stephen Schwartzmans of Blackstone and the Ken Griffins of Citadel. It will matter where they put their money in terms of, 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 of the outcome of the election. But you've just had a major Donald Trump proponent flip this morning. She's going to be testifying for the prosecution against him. And again, you've had Jim Jordan lose on trying to get the House of Speaker gavel in his hand. And so if, if the winds are changing uh, in the United States politically, that's extremely relevant. But again, you could have somebody who is very much of the mind to pay people not to work, which is Gavin Newsom, who's an extremely savvy, articulate, brilliant politician. You could easily see him rise to the top of the Democratic Party. Looking at the Fed's role um, and what they, when we last spoke, you you were critical, but you said the Fed should still exist. How, do you, have you changed that view? Um, do you think we could run the the economy could be run without the 
influence, interference, whichever word you want may want to use of the Fed? So um, the, the answer is still no, if the Federal Reserve is still making monetary policy. And right now, that is certainly the case. Because if you quiz anybody on Wall Street or anybody in banking, they would say that, that Jay Powell does need to be taken out by special ops and that Hire for Longer does not have a place in, in, in their P&L, that he needs to go away soon. Um, but if we were in a world that paralleled that of the post-pandemic era, one in which interest rates are held at the zero bound and the Federal Reserve is... Um, effectively recruited, ranked, uh, brought in to monetize every last penny that the U.S. government issues in debt, um, then all you really need is a cute little AI function. And you don't need anybody. Right. So an algorithm could do it. An algorithm can buy treasury bonds, correct. And you don't need a human being to keep interest rates at zero. You need a wheelbarrow to carry around your money, <laughs> a, la, a la Weimar. Um, but you don't need individuals to keep the interest rate bound at zero. That is just math. And you why, don't why, why can't the market to, why you can't, don't individuals to monetize the U.S. debt? Why can't the market be allowed to set, set policy rates? Why do, why do we need a, 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 an exogenous force to uh, set interest rates for us? I, I'm afraid I don't have that much faith in. Um, I have full faith in markets. I don't have that much faith in the people who would otherwise manipulate markets. And I certainly don't. The, my primary reason for saying we should have a Federal Reserve is to say that we should have somebody safeguarding our financial markets such that we wouldn't want to begin to flirt with a repeat of what China has done to our intellectual property inside of our financial system. One of the one of the objectives of the Fed is to seek, basically, in addition to full employment, it's also to seek price stability. But the, the U.S. dollar has lost 99% of its purchasing power since the Fed was established in 1913. If the Fed is keeping us from inflation, I'd like to see what someone not keeping us from inflation would be doing. That's a very easy, it, it's an easy argument to make, and it's been made many, many times. But again, right now, a monkey can tell you the Federal Reserve has abandoned its employment mandate. So uh, it is solely focused on inflation. And that is why it is so easy for Jerome Powell to ignore all of the real-time indicators, such as bankruptcies, such as layoffs, such as closings, such as thousands of banks, thousands of pharmacies. Um, it's, it's, he's literally ignoring it on purpose in order to feign that the job market is strong so that he can hide behind that and use it to continue to maintain a high interest rate policy, which nobody in the markets want because since Paul Volcker walked the planet, nobody in the markets has had to contend with. And yet, that, that seems to be like a kind of um, Vietnam era coinage, which is we had to destroy the village in order to save it. Well, we've created a monster. I mentioned that the non-banking system is $240 trillion of unregulated financial system that overwhelms that dwarfs the size of the conventional system discussed at Basel, 180 trillion. But many people listening would say it's the banking system that's the problem. And it was a banking system that got us into problems in 2008, but the only one that was allowed to fail was Lehman Brothers. And then we bailed everybody else out. And then everybody left because we imposed regulations that disallowed them speculating to the extent that they wanted. So they left the banking system, a hollow shell of its former self, and went off into the shadows and became private equity kingpins making billions of dollars. I mean, the business of banks shouldn't be to speculate in the first place, but that was Glass-Steagall stuff. They got rescinded under um, Clinton. Oh, I'm all over bringing Glass-Steagall back. All over that. And, and, and actually, you know, what's happening to the U.S. banking system right now is not necessarily a bad thing. Because if Jay Powell maintains higher for longer, he will break the back of private equity. And, but not private credit to distinguish. Of course, private credit is not levered. And that's the point, right? Full, full covenants. And that's the other point, right? So if you break the back of private equity uh, to the benefit of private credit and you maintain a higher interest rate regime, which does not punish savers, then you could theoretically begin to rebuild from the inside out a stronger conventional U.S. banking system. And that would be the ultimate beneficiary and would explain why 
somebody speaking right now at a podium named Jay Powell, who's worth $100 million, has chosen to stay in his position where he is a target to be taken out. Do, do you seriously think that that's what he's what he's actually planning to do, or, or that's the overall plan, or, or or do you think that that's your reading of of what he's doing? I there was a there was a shopping mall that that changed hands for ten cents on the dollar a few days ago. Um, he's he's breaking the back of the securitization market as we speak. So he is, uh, you know, the minute he was confirmed by the U.S. Senate which was a six month delay, an embarrassment, a stain on the Biden administration, never seen anything that like that. But after a six month delay, the minute he was con- reconfirmed by the US Senate overwhelmingly with 80 votes, he said transitory is gone, there's a new sheriff in town. He hasn't looked back since. So everybody who always says, are you sure Jay Powell's on a mission? I'm like, have a look at the calendar because it's been a long time. Well, there was that, I mean, he wrong-footed the market in the sense that the message was rates are going to stay low, rates are going to stay low, rates are going to stay low, and then whoosh. Until he was confirmed. Until the day he was confirmed. On the day that he was confirmed, he did a very rare radio interview and threw transitory out the window the day he was confirmed, knowing very well that the academics at the Federal Reserve had taken him down a very dark path of BS called transitory. The Biden administration had split the leadership of the Federal Reserve at the seams between Lael Brainerd, a progressive, and Jay Powell, and held them hostage for six months, at which point there was absolutely no policy being made. So the fatal era of transitory stood in place until Jay Powell actually had a position of leadership. We forget he was in, he was not confirmed. He was technically not in his seat for six months from when his first term ended until he was confirmed by the Senate. And the day that he was confirmed by the Senate, he tossed transitory out as bullshit the minute he had the power to do so and four more years in office. That's so interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that, that timeline. I didn't know that that happened like that. I just assumed he was in power the whole um, time. Ping me after because um, I've got the full bullet pointed timeline which is the most fascinating reading that you will ever see all inside baseball all washington dc that's incredible i've just seen a quote go past on the wires feds pal we certainly have a very resilient economy on our, on our hands but what it doesn't say is, and we can do everything we can to destroy it <laughs> absolutely again he's he's not trying he's trying to kill the fed put and that's a very i mean look on october the 20th 1987 Alan Greenspan came out and said, the Federal Reserve stands ready to back the health of the economic, excuse me, of the U.S. economy and the banking and financial systems. And it was immediately thereafter that, he, that, that Alan Greenspan started leaking information to bond trading desks ahead of the Fed's injections of liquidity into the system. October the 20th, 1987, the Fed put was born. You try and break that puppy. I remember one of of the biographies was called Maestro of uh, Greenspan. Is Greenspan the worst thing that's ever happened to the Federal Reserve? His fascination with the stock market was his Achilles heel that set the U.S. economy on the path to perdition, where it finds Mm -hmm. itself today with one man trying to break a stronghold, which is the wealthiest people in the world running the U.S. economy. It's an it's an impossible job, isn't it? It's a completely impossible job. Well, when you think that Stephen Schwartzman, his salary last year was one point three billion dollars, yes, I would say it's a bit of a bit of a challenge. Knowing what's wrong is one thing, but knowing what to do, I often think, if I was in power, what would I do? Uh, or you know, and I, I pose that question to guests as well. And it's um, it's you just have to. St- start again or you end up inheriting a problem and having to try to manage it in the in the best way possible but there's no there's no easy answer exactly what he's doing Hmm. you beautifully described hire for longer just now Hmm. i don't have to say a word (laughs) so in terms of qi research it's it is completely unique um because of your perspective you you see that 
most analysts are looking or have misunderstandings in the way that they view the markets. What what would you say is the biggest misunderstanding that you hear from other economists, perhaps where they're focused or um, maybe econometrics that they're looking at that they perhaps are not giving them the right read on what's going on in the economy? So I think when you're talking about the sell side, obviously they're coming at it from a prism of everybody who reads this needs to be long the stock market. It's very difficult to craft economic research from that vista. When you're talking about the pure academics, econometrics, they tend to focus on two different worlds, a pre-QE world and a pre-pandemic world, and attempt to seasonally adjust it using irrelevant backdrops. Prior to quantitative easing, we had a different construct, a different economic construct. Prior to the pandemic, we had a different economic construct. And yet, pure play academics continue to use the wrong historic corollaries to draw their conclusions. So they're always going to be operating in the dark. The U.S. economy, prior to quantitative easing, uh, never had a mechanism to deliver wealth directly to the top 1%. But quantitative easing, of course, it, it, it created that. And the flip side is that all the way back in U.S. history, we've never handed people money. And that's exactly what we did after the pandemic. We told the banking system that it was completely irrelevant. It no longer needed to decide who was worthy and who was not worthy of receiving credit, that money was going to be directly deposited into people's checking accounts. and we created demand-driven inflation, which is really something that we've never seen. And again, it, it wasn't the supply shock outside of semiconductors to build cars. The supply shock came off fairly quickly, but we kept giving people money directly. So they kept running out to buy Chanel bags and Hermes belts. And that is demand-driven inflation. So if you're an economist and you're looking back at a parallel of of 2018 or 2019, you may as well be trying to translate Swahili into English in making your forecast. I don't happen to make those mistakes. Sort of touched on it in terms of the the status of the Fed and what, what, what one might do if one were in charge. Absent, absent the Fed itself, what what would you change about the setup of the current system in order to give it more stability and credibility than it currently has? I would impose term limits on U.S. politicians. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek, and it's certainly not something easy to do. probably requires constitutional um, referendum as opposed to trying to go through Congress, who's never going to hold back their own power. And but, would it? Um, and sorry to cut in. Would it also be realistic to think there might be possibly work to be done, good work to be done in relation to curbing the lobbying power of, lo- of corporate lobby groups? Well, if you destroy term limits, you destroy lobbies. Right. That's that's one of your outgrowths. If you if, if anybody listening Google's the name Pat Toomey T O O M E Y after this Pat Toomey, he imposed his own um, term limits on himself. He alone stood in the way of the Federal Reserve appointing individuals like they've just appointed now that he's out of the Senate. Um, He alone stood in the way of um, a a, a stained Federal Reserve official who obviously gained the system from, from taking a position of power. He alone stood in the way of the Federal Reserve's credit facilities staying on. And, and then he walked away as he vowed to do. Because he knew that if he had, he knew that if he was not beholden to lobbyists to stay in office forever and die in office like Dianne Feinstein, that if he was not beholden to lobbyists, that he could actually legislate and be a leader in a responsible way that safeguarded the sanctity of the U.S. economy, which he did. So at a higher level, if you want to affect change and make sure that there are no special interests running the country, you impose term limits. Will it ever happen? There are several um, movements that have gained a lot of momentum in the last five to six years, I would say. I'm part of one of them. And 
if we don't end up with socialism and we don't end up with the blue wave that I described, where the progressives vote in the ability to never have to work again, get paid more to not work than work. If we don't go down that path, I think the next, I, I think the alternative, obviously the much better one, because you save the country, democracy, capitalism, as you know it. Um, I think the much better path would be to pursue term limits. So it's really, the, the next year is probably one of the most pivotal in the history of the United States. Because if we turn to universal basic income and go back to that kind of stimulus, then all of the doom and gloomers and the de-dollarizers and the interest rates are going to the moon and they'll all be right. There won't be a country to talk about, but they'll all be right. So, um, was there... On that bombshell. That is a bombshell. That really is. Um, was there anything we haven't asked you that you wanted to, wanted to say? We probably haven't quite gone over in its entirety world peace, but other than that, I think we've done well. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we like to wrap up the show with what we call media picks, which is could be a book, a film. It doesn't have to be financially related, but it can be. So anything that you've seen or heard or read that you think is worth sharing to, to people? Um, Tim, I'm going to ask you first, and then I'll give you a bit of time to think of something, Danielle, and, and uh, come back to you. So, Tim. So mine for this week is uh, a little a video I saw, a little film I saw, documentary. I think it's a documentary. I think it's a documentary. Will work for views. The low, the lo-fi life of Weird Paul, which is uh, from 2017. A guy called Paul Petrosky. Um, if anybody's seen, um, which is the uh, Meet the Goldbergs, which has a sort of a, a video brat from the 80s. And that's a sort of sitcom. Well, this this guy is the sort of uh, Adam Goldberg in real life. So he's been putting himself, he's been filming himself on like, you'd love this book. He's doing on a little video camera. Um, it's it's non-digital. It's all analog. And then he's putting it onto VHS tapes. God knows how he's still getting online. I, I don't claim to understand the technology. But basically, he's he's got acres and acres of footage of himself doing various things and doing songs and little skits and little sketches and, and, and whatever. And... You can't. So this started in the eighties, and you can't quite tell if it's for real or not because it might just be a very elaborate hoax. But it's 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 a, a very weirdly moving film, and it, it because it starts in the eighties, you wonder whether he was like the precursor to all things, all things net, all things TikTok and YouTube, and and he's he's someone who who will be completely obsessed about getting his his likes up and his numbers up ahead of getting on a plane. So if I get another five likes or 10 likes on whichever service, and I, I can't tell if it's heartbreaking or funny or inspirational or a bit of all three. Anyhow, it's called Will Work for Views, The Lo-Fi Life of Weird Paul. And I think it's a documentary. Okay. Danielle? So um, I don't get out much. and uh, so I, You can I, assume I, that goes for all of us, Danielle. Yes, absolutely. Indeed, indeed. indeed. Um, but I, I caught up with a documentary made in 2018 that I highly recommend. I've watched it twice. It's called Always at the Carlisle, as in the gym in New York. And um, it is a throwback. I used to live, uh, I, I, for most of the time I, I lived in New York, I lived around the corner from the Carlisle, and it was my neighborhood bar, which sounds very pretentious. It was actually because I was lazy and always in high heels and it was just the closest bar to me. Um, but it is the most glorious look back at an era that is beyond bygone and yet very close in proximity at the same time made in the year before, uh, the pandemic, uh, but it, well, in 2018 it was released, but it is absolutely delightful and so well done it's on netflix i just highly highly recommend it that's fantastic I that's why i love asking because those little gems that you might miss you know someone will have picked them up um now i haven't uh i haven't myself had a chance to watch or see very much at all in the last few weeks so all i'm going to say is i'm that, that, I, that excuse is not going to cut it <laughs> I, I well look killers of the flower moon have you heard of heard of that film it's um yeah, yeah I just can't wait. Latest Scorsese. Yeah, I mean just from the just just from the trailer, it looks absolutely fantastic. So I can't wait to see that. Um, 
you know, I, I saw the Barbie movie. I've got to say, I wasn't, I wasn't particularly a fan of it at all. I only watched it because everyone was going on about it. Not, not watching it. Refuse. No. Yeah, I, yeah. I wish I'd taken that view, Danielle. Um, so very, very wise. Um, so yeah, that that's the one I'm looking for. Um, Beckham on Netflix is excellent. It's really, really good. Great documentary about the football player. Uh, so much goes on in the background. It, it sort of speaks to what you were saying, Danielle, about the, the political issues that go on in the background at the Fed. You know, you just from the outside, you just don't know what's going on until you delve in and you find out that there's so many moving parts. And it's it's absolutely fascinating. So I, I would say that would be my one. Danielle, um, before you go, please let us know where people can find you. I know you're on Substack and I know you've got obviously QI research. What, what are your handles? Uh, so demartinobooth.substack.com. Uh, look me up at QI Research if you're an institutional investor. Uh, I've got a, a roaringly fun Bloomberg chat room. Uh, and um, at demartinobooth is, is my Twitter handle. And I've got a private Twitter handle for our institutional clients as well. But uh, at demartinobooth, demartinobooth.substack.com, please come see me. And um, and as as crazy as I may sound, I, I write just as entertainingly and just as honestly. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. It's always so interesting. We definitely learn something every time you come on and we look forward to you coming back. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.